Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reese Mandel. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. So today we're going to dig into some fun archiving and transcribing stories here. We're going to be talking about WRVR-FM, which was a platform for progressive activism and social justice on the New York City airwaves from 1961 to 1976. And this station was owned and operated by the Riverside Church on Manhattan's Upper West Side. And the station featured culturally significant non-commercial programming, including interviews, speeches, musical interpretations on topics like civil rights, war, and the arts. Many voices were heard from ordinary folks to renowned activists and scholars and artists. Folks like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Pete Seeger were all heard on the airwaves there. And now these voices are being preserved through a joint digitization project between the Riverside Church and the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. So that project is called Public Radio as a Tool for Cultural Engagement in New York in the 1960s and early 70s, digitizing the broadcast of WRVR-FM Public Radio. And on June 17th, they'll be hosting something called a transcriptathon asking the public to help correct automated transcripts, really helping to enhance the accessibilities of these valuable archives. And we'll definitely be getting into that some more. So we'd love to welcome to the show Vince Kelly, your archivist at the Riverside Church Archives. Welcome, Vince. Hey, how's it going, guys? How you doing? And also, we want to welcome Rin Marquesi, who is the Engagement and Use Manager for the American Archives of Public Broadcasting. Welcome, Rin. Thank you. So maybe first to set the scene, you know, I, I'm going to be frank. I was surprised I didn't really know about WRVR because uh, I'm, uh, you know, a deep uh, nerd of community and public radio history. I grew up in, in the New York region, although I was only alive for maybe the very end of the, the station's uh, history and uh, not really of the type to be listening to, to, to non-commercial radio at the time. But to learn about, uh, in fact, this fascinating history – um, that it existed is amazing. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about about WRVR and 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 its and its history beginning in 1961. There, yeah. Well, it started in 1961 as a public radio station, and it uh, went along for about 10 years. It transitioned in 1971 to being a commercial radio station, and by that time had kind of transitioned into mostly jazz music. And then in 1976, it was sold off. Uh, to a company called Sonderling. And it, the station still broadcasts, and actually Riverside still maintains like a little 15-minute early Sunday morning block still. Uh, but the station, it, 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 was a, it was kind of this interesting experiment um, at the time of, of a, a church having a public FM radio station that produced not just religious programming, but uh, a wide variety of educational programming and news programming and arts programming. Um, so it was just, it was this interesting new uh, experiment in public radio. You know, and do you know, I, I'm just curious if you know, if there was one person who is the impetus behind that, there are often these stories in radio about people who have this idea and are passionate about radio have you have you learned any kernels about that? Yeah, well, it's actually really interesting. Uh, the The founding minister of Riverside Church uh, was Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he was actually one of these really early early nineteen twenties radio preachers. Um, I think you guys had an episode pretty recently with, or, you know, a little while ago with Tona Hangen uh, talking about sort of the evangelical side of early radio and he was sort of on the mainline Protestant side and, and really on the, the liberal side of the Protestant spectrum um, sort of uh, he, he, he had this big controversy surrounding him because he was a, a considered a modernist in, in rejection of the fundamentalists and embraced things like evolution. And uh, you know, he was just, he was a very controversial firebrand figure and he, he was a big radio preacher all throughout the twenties and thirties was kind of seen as this progressive alternative to Charles Coughlin, the sort of proto fascist Catholic radio preacher. And, uh, but actually, so, so the church always had this association with broadcast media. And so when there was this renovation in the 1950s and they added a new wing, they chose to include radio equipment and 
uh, and hookups for television so that they could broadcast directly out of the nave of the church. Um, and around that time, there was a, a, a committee formed of church members led by Francis Stewart Harmon, who's kind of this interesting character. I, I find him very interesting. This interesting character who had been, um, if you're familiar with film history, you might know about the Hayes Code in the mm-hmm. 1930s, this, uh, this, this like really restrictive code that was, an, that was created to kind of like control what could be shown in Hollywood pictures. Uh, and he had been the personal assistant to, Will, to Hayes and, and had been sort of one of these censors. So he, he was tied up in mass media already and kind of knew that landscape. And so he was sort of commissioned to create this committee uh, to kind of research the possibility of creating a radio station or a television station. Um, and so they eventually decided not to create a television station, but they did decide that it was a, a good idea to create a, a radio station. So uh, over the course of the late 50s and beginning on January 1st, 1961, they, they created this this new radio station. Hmm. That's fascinating, especially because I think when most people think of of religious radio in the United States these days, they tend to thinking think of things that are definitely more along the lines of proselytizing, um, and, and it tends not also to be you know associated with sort of social justice causes. Um, and but at, but at the time that that the station went on the air in the in the early sixties, I mean, I suspect. To some extent, that was also still true, although there were probably fewer uh, religious stations on the air compared compared to today, where we've seen a relative explosion in the last uh, 20, 20 years or so. And so what what was behind creating this alternative? You sort of mentioned how the founding uh, pastor's uh, minister's experience had been on radio he'd, as, as a preacher to to be more modernist, right, especially amongst uh, the Protestant faiths. But can, can you say more about what what was seen as the mission uh, for uh, WRVR uh, then it, as it went on the air in, in 1961? You know, I, I think the the idea was that there would be religious radio and they did broadcast, you know, the Sunday service of worship, uh, but they really limited to maybe like a third at, at any given time. Tops was, was solely religious programming. It, it, it Their mission was really to be, an educational radio station. Um, and, and from the beginning, they were, you know, the, the first station manager was somebody who had come from WGBH mm-hmm. and had this background in educational radio and had been sort of uh, an organizing force in what became the, it, it, it's confusing, there's the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, which already existed, but then there's also the, uh, there's the ERN, Educational Radio Network, which, which sort of came later on in the 1960s and was sort of like a, a, a child organization of that. And, and he was sort of one of the driving forces of creating this big educational tape sharing network. So, so the idea was to be a part of this larger community of educational radio stations. And also, you know, Riverside's located in Morningside Heights. There's a bunch of universities right around there. There's Columbia, there's Barnard, there's Union Theological Seminary, there's Jewish Theological Seminary. So it was in this environment of uh, higher education, and it wanted to kind of be responsive to and, and call upon that. Um, and, you know, I think even if, from the very beginning, they sort of knew that when they were going to make this pitch to the FCC to have a church-run public radio station, they knew that it had to be operating in the public interest. They knew that it had to be uh, sort of offering even time to differing views. And so throughout there was material, not just from Protestant faiths, but there was a routine broadcast of the the portion of the week was one of the routine shows. So, uh, you know, there, there was Jewish religious content and, and there would even be sort of debates or, uh, broadcasts of sort of religious conferences involving cr- across different faiths. If I may jump in, yes, it's right. helpful to know that the church is interdenominational, interracial, and international, which helps helped me understand the collection a lot more. And Vincent's mentioned the portions of the week collection, which is um, Hebrew readings, uh, readings of the Hebrew Bible uh, with rabbinical commentary. But the collection also includes raw footage from the 1963 March on Washington. It also has poems by Edgar Allan Poe. So it's 
it is more than just uh, religious commentary. Right, right. And and I think it's important also to take into account that this is the period before national public radio had been created. This was before the Corporation for Public Broadcasting had been created. So it's a time when we did not have, uh, you know, uh, this unified, nationally funded public broadcasting uh, system. Instead, uh, right, you had these uh, independent stations often owned by universities, sometimes owned by independent nonprofits, in this case, owned by Riverside Church, which affiliated together with the National Association of Educational Broadcasters or that educational radio network, as, as you noted, Vince. And, you know, and that was, in fact, their association and the work of these organizations helped to bring public broadcasting as we know in the United States now in, into action. But it was a it was a fairly different system then and, and, and far more atomized even than it is now. And, you know, I know that the um, digitizing project began in 2018, uh, I believe, right? And I'm curious, Vince, you know, with all of all of this material, like how well or, or how had it been kind of preserved or cataloged in those intervening years from 1976, you know, uh, to, to 2018? Uh, well, it's interesting. A lot of it had remained at Riverside Church and, and just sort of floated around various storage rooms. Uh, there had been a few sort of uh, amateur archivists that had tried to sort of take control of everything. Um, but it wasn't really until around, I want to say 2015, that a professional archivist named Ricky Moskowitz came in um, and she is the one who was sort of approached. I, I think it was actually AAPB that first sort of realized that there must be this cache of WRVR material somewhere and sort of sought us out and were saying, you know, if you have this stuff, we'd love to work with you on this grant to uh, to sort of get this digitized and get this out to the world. Um, and so that was sort of the the genesis of it. Well, that seems like that. Oh yeah, I was going to say that seems like a great place for Rin to explain how that happened. <laughs> how did AAPB find out about this material? Yeah, absolutely. So. WRVR won a Peabody Award for its coverage of the civil rights movement in Birmingham in 1963. And that was of interest to the APB, of course, and then we learned about the majority of its collection. And so you learned about the collection, uh, you know, because there, you know, you knew about this Peabody Award. That that's sort of like a fairly prominent record, if you will, of what was there. They were the first station. They were the first station, right, to, to get that Peabody Award, and so. But what gave you the sense that there was there was more to be had? Was it really like that? You figured you could pull on that string a little bit on the on all of that coverage for which they'd won the Peabody, and more and you sort of more would would materialize. Is it was it really? a matter of getting in touch uh, with the folks at Riverside Church and them sort of beginning to open up the coffers to show you the, the all the treasures within? Yeah, I think that's, Vince, were you there when those beginning conversations happened with the Library of Congress? I was not there at the beginning. Was I, I was actually there at the, I was, I was there from the beginning of the project because I had been brought in uh, as just as an intern to help inventory the material right when this project was all starting. I, I, I think really it was, it, we, we talked earlier about this whole big tape network and everything. And I, I think some of those tapes over the course of that time with the network bouncing around different stations all over the East coast, really it, some of those had just sort of landed elsewhere. Uh, in addition, uh, one of the, one of the shows that was on WRVR, one of the most beloved shows on WRVR was uh, just jazz with Ed beach, which was really this, uh, renowned show that was a sort of groundbreaking in jazz radio and much of that collection had ended up at the library of Congress. So I think the idea was sort of, let's reunify this whole collection. Mm -hmm. Let's take these items that sort of already exist that we know uh, from being sort of found in other archives that have been part of this uh, national association of educational broadcasters network uh, and let's bring together back together this just jazz collection from Library of Congress, and let's let's make this you know one big collection just sort of focusing on uh, WRVR's place in the larger uh, sort of educational broadcasting uh, environment in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. 
So if the general interest of AAPB in collections is if stations come to APB wanting to know about preservation or telling us about this wonderful collection that they have, if it's something not like that, then it is generally our project directors having knowledge about collections that we would like to further continue to have available and accessible to the public. And Rin, what what sorts of radio stations are generally a part of the AAPB collection? I'm I'm guessing that there aren't that many churches. So maybe if you could talk to that. That's an, yeah, I was thinking about that as we were discussing it earlier. And I was thinking about there are a lot of Native American programming in the APB, talking about cultural traditions, which could be as part of the spiritual programming. Um, But nothing as, as this, as comprehensive as this, so I should start from the beginning with what APB is. Um, it's a collaboration between the Library Congress and public media producer GBH to digitally preserve and make accessible public radio and television from across the nation that have been produced over the past 70 plus years. And because we have over 120,000 items in the collection with half of these items streaming online, we have transcriptathons and WRVR is participating in this transcriptathon to help correct computer generated transcripts. And these transcripts help make content more keyword searchable um, online. Um, And so what kind of radio programs we have in the APB is um, community, university, local, national, any program that basically has gone out on public broadcasting is um, applicable to be preserved in the APD. And so for this transcriptathon, you say you're asking people to kind of help with this correction. Um, you know, like, how does that work? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I mean, it, are, you know, are, is, it, is it a case in which somebody, somebody uh, does this from their computer, does this from home yes. and is kind of listening yes. along? Uh, you know, give 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 it give us a sense uh, of of what 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 this kind of work looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, correcting computer generated transcripts is a lot of fun. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. Uh, like I mentioned, there are programs um, like the raw footage from the 1963 March on Washington, uh, the raw speeches from that event, and I was transcribing it this morning in the comfort of my office thinking over 100,000 people attended this march, and I get to have front row clear audio of what these speakers are saying. And not only do I get to hear their speeches, I get to pay attention to every single word. And every single word that I help put on the page goes right on online for any scholar or educator or researcher to then search later on. Um, So that's the basis of transcriptathons, but it's simply visiting a webpage, which is fixitplus.americanarchive.org. But for WRVR content, because it is such a large collection, it has its own website, and that is wrvrtranscripts.americanarchive.org. And you'll be able to see tiles of all the transcripts. You get to see how long they are um, and choose from there. And people can go line by line. There's about a few seconds of audio per line, and you get to see what the computer has already transcribed. And if there's a misspelled word, or we often have misspelled counties or, um, let's say, mayor names, it's helpful that we have local audiences do the research to help correct these keyword searches. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, proper names, right, give it a give it some tough uh uh, it's sometimes tough for them to, for it to get right, and I'm sure there are also sometimes where just simply it picks up the the wrong homonym amongst many possible words. Although you know, depending on the algorithm, they get better and better about understanding that sort of context. And I think for comparison, someone might think about when they've seen uh, you know ca- live captions on television, or even now you know Zoom and and like Google Hangouts and things will can do live captions of conference calls, but you'll see that the accuracy can vary, and that. 
it's one thing to be listening live and, and, and seeing the text on screen when you know kind of what the gist is. But it's another thing, I think, to, to read uh, the transcript in, all by itself. Sometimes I'm sure the, the, the mistakes or the, the, the misread uh, words uh, can really confound the meaning of, of what's going on. And that's why you need folks to go in and do this. Exactly, especially for the portions of the week um, radio series where there are a lot of Hebrew words or a lot of traditional words that audiences might not know if they're not in those communities. So it's really helpful to have local ears on those programs because it helps make them searchable. So is everything in, can you talk about the automatic transcript just to back up a little bit? Is everything in the AAPB archive attached to a computer-generated transcript to begin with? Yes. So we put them through Caldi, which is an open source uh, program that creates computer-generated transcripts. We don't have all of the transcripts in Fix-It Plus yet because it is such a massive project that takes a long time to have transcripts uploaded. But if folks come to a program and they see that there is a transcript that is incorrect and they want to correct it, but it's not fix it plus they can reach out to us and we can put it in there, which is helpful for educators. Sometimes reach out to us if there's a particular program that they want students to work on. Um, so yes, everything can have a computer generated transcript transcript at your fingertips and available to you. It just it might not be there yet. <laughs> and I think it's, uh, I'm fascinated by the sort of crowdsourcing, function of this. It sounds, to me, it sounds a little bit sort of like Wikipedia in a way, right? And so I'm wondering what you do to make sure that um, volunteers work, I guess, on the one hand is at the very least accurate. And on the other hand, um, that, you know, you don't have somebody who's, who has malicious intent, who, you know, wants to sort of vandalize the work. So each transcript goes through different levels of editors. There's, well, each transcript have to, has to have two editors one to go through it the first time. The second editor goes through to either confirm that person, that first person's edits or disagree with them and type something different. And then the staff review the final transcript before it goes online to the public. Got it. So you've got many checks in place there. And, and I guess it, it could be the case that more than one volunteer might work on a particular transcript. Correct. Yes. Wow. And how do you find the volunteers? Who are these special people who are interested <laughs> in listening to archival radio programming? They are very special people. I have, I have volunteers from across the nation. And when I'm particularly organizing an event for a specific station, like WRVR, I've gotten to know the church community uh, members that show up. Otherwise, if it's not a church community, it's usually the public broadcasting community, such as GBH. So a lot of stations reach out to their volunteer groups or their local libraries, high school groups. I've gone to senior centers, which has been really fun for seniors to say, oh, I remember when this happened in, in history, and now I get to transcribe it. Um, it's a really great way to connect with anyone, really, I've found. Yeah, and you've done these many times before. The one for WRVR is coming up, but have you dozens of times, would you say, that you've done these transcriptathons? Yes, especially during the pandemic. I was hosting virtual online weekly transcriptathons. And through that, I had a crew of solid volunteers that would show up every time and consistently email me over the week and about the transcripts that they've transcribed and how timely some of them were. This woman without fail almost every week had transcribed an interview that was relevant to today's news in some way or some form. The most recent transcriptathon I've hosted for actually the collection for Peabody Award collect Peabody awarded awards collection in the APB. Um, this woman talked about how she knew people related to a radio program about medical practices back in the 1960s. Wow. That, so, voice, yeah. that voice you just heard is Rin Marquesi, who is the Engagement and Use Manager for the American Archives of Public Broadcasting. We're also welcoming Vince Kelly, who's an archivist at the Riverside Church Archives. 
at the Riverside Church in the city of New York. And we're talking about the archives of WRVR, which was a radio station that existed from 1961 to 1976 in New York City, um, owned by the Riverside Church, but played host to to many, many prominent uh, f- historical figures as well as artists, especially who were working in, in the realm of civil rights and, and social justice movements uh, during that time. And that collection is being digitized uh, by the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and uh, is being made available online for folks to hear and also to be able to read. And, and what Rune was just telling us about was uh, that uh, these transcripts that are created by computers are being cr- corrected by all sorts of volunteers. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmanel, and of course, joining me here, as always, is Jennifer Waits. You know, we love hearing about radio stations that maybe, you know, uh, we didn't quite know about before. And you know, one question I had for for you, Vince, is you know, at this time in New York City, there was another prominent radio station, WBAI. Right, which which of course still exists, um, and it was part of the Pacifica Network. Continues to be part of the Pacifica Network. It went on the air just uh, just really about a year before WRVR went on the air as a community radio station, which also tended to uh, have a focus on social justice content um, and, and and a lot of uh, similar sorts of topics as as covered at WRVR. I mean, do you do you know uh, at the time uh, what? what were the folks at Riverside Church, were they aware of WBAI? Do you know, was there ever any type of coordination or cooperation between the stations? You know, I don't know much about that. I, I They would have to have been aware of it. But uh, whether or not there was any coordination or not, I, I, I'm not certain. Um, yeah, I can't say. Okay. It's just curious. And I, I suspect – you know, both having this sort of educational mission and both dedicated to to apparently to having debate on air, right? I, I, probably, you know, if I'm going to guess, uh, WBAI is a Pacifica station at the time, probably leaned a bit more um, freeform, probably, and, and we know, and a bit more anarchic, for lack of a better way of putting it. <laughs> and it sounds as though WRVR, you know, sounded programmed and probably sounded on air, and it, well, I, I have heard it, did sound on air, a bit more like what we think of public radio sounding like. Is that, is that a fair uh, characterization? Exactly. I, I, think, I think WRBR definitely would have le- leaned a little bit more institutional and a little bit more, uh, you know, slightly conservative. I mean, still, still being, having this kind of uh, liberal mindset and, and trying to have lots of different voices on air. Um, but, but probably a little bit more, uh, you know, it it was, it was supported by a very small set of wealthy donors. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it was willing to sort of, I I think, you know, stepping on toes was not really, uh, an option for them. So some of the stuff that ended up on air, I think ended up being, uh, frustrating people or, or angering people who had been, either donors or supporters. And, and sometimes that happened, you know, against the, against the will of, of whoever was, you know, running the station that day. So Vince, by that, does yeah. that mean that you have found some interesting things in the archives indicating that perhaps angry letters? There's a few different, <laughs> there's a lot of angry letters over the years. I, I think there was a, a, a plethora of angry letters about various things, but I mean, there was a few different interesting things. I, I, I think, you know, uh, one of the probably the most famous broadcasts on WRVR would have been um, Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech, which had, I mean, n- national consequences. There were people, it was, you know, I, that, that filled the editorial pages of national newspapers for weeks afterwards. Uh, and at the time, it had, it had kind of just appeared on it was originally planned to be the event was originally planned to be across the street, but they ran out of space for, for all the people who were going to attend. So they ended up having it at Riverside more as just a kind of a, a, a favor uh, to the organization that was uh, put, putting on the speech. And I think a lot of people were pretty upset about that because King called out very clearly, you know, what was going on in Vietnam and, and, was one of these first sort of really prominent people to kind of come out against the war and, and uh, insist that it be stopped. Another famous incident was um, when James Foreman uh, stormed 
the chancel during during the service of worship um, and sort of released this thing known as the Black Manifesto, which was this demand that uh, white churches and synagogues uh, give half a billion dollars in reparations. And this was sort of at the very beginning of the reparations discussion. And that happened, I mean, totally, uh, you know, that happened on, on the air live. Mm. There was no one, no one decided to put that on. That was just, that was just the regular live service of worship was playing over the air. And, and this just happened to happen. Uh, so, so there were a few incidents like that where I, I think uh, despite the more institutional tone of WRVR in general, the, the, these sort of more radical voices were heard, uh, you know, across the entire New York city area. And And can we, can we easily hear just now that you're mentioning these really interesting broadcasts, can we easily listen to those in the archives? Yeah. Well, very soon they'll be available on uh, the Riverside church's archives page. We're working on that. Um, The James Foreman interruption is available on the AAPB's website currently. Um, these recordings of Beyond Vietnam and, and King's other appearances uh, have, have some copyright issues surrounding them, of course. Um, and so those aren't available on the AAPB as of now. But uh, we're working on trying to figure out a way to make those available to the general public. And I think it's important to keep in mind that American broadcasting at this time was incredibly conservative, and 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 I mean conservative, not necessarily in the in the political bent necessarily, but that it, incredibly filtered, incredibly constrained, and that um, and it's, and that would have been I think especially true of radio and especially true of commercial radio, which would have formed the the vast majority of radio that you would have heard, and and you know sort of like today the FM dial would have been majority music even then, and not as popular. Uh, as the AM dial, where you would have heard more of a news programming, but that um, I think it was still unusual at the time. And 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 Ren, you can correct me, you know, to hear uh, you know full speeches, you know, on on any sort of regular basis, aside from perhaps the most newsworthy of events. Uh, more likely, you know, you'd have heard a report not unlike what you would hear now if you tuned into the all news station, you know, like a WCBS uh, or WINS in New York City. You might hear little tiny segments, but, but, you know, in-depth debates on, on either, you know, topics, political or religious, especially with a social justice uh, tone would have really stood out as, as very different. I think during those times, is is that roughly correct, Rin? I would agree. There were stations that were either very much dedicated to civil rights, talking about civil rights, but there are programs that are also dedicated to being about for, by, and about specific communities. So um, communities of color, particularly there's Say Brother that was created, but that is a television show um, by GBH Mm -hmm. about for, by, about black communities. I'm trying to think here. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot, you know, and, and I'm making kind of a, a generalization, right? That, of course, there there were, you know, there were other college radio stations on the air in New York City at the time um, and other cities, and, and they could have, so, you know, featuring some programming like this. I think, you know, what to me stands out for, for WRVR is the sort of consistent and, and uh, focus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that, that every moment on the airways was controversial necessarily. Right. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, I think probably would have stood out to anyone who, who had stumbled upon, uh, upon the frequency. And also as I, the frequency was like 106.7 FM, right? Vince is that 106.7. Correct? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So not in the left end of the dial, not, which is, you know, typically reserved for non-commercial broadcasting, you know, college radio and religious and public radio. So that to me, even is sort is sort of, sort of fascinating and, and kind of, you know, helps, I think for us to kind of frame this and understand why it stands out. Well, you know, why, yeah. why to take note? I mean, obviously having <laughs> these programs, like having had broadcast, you know, the beyond Vietnam speech or the, the James Foreman interruption. I mean, that's all of great historic circumstance, but you know, what is there's 4,000 hours in the archive that's being digitized. Is that correct? I mean, like that. yeah, that's an incredible sum of tape. Um, really, I mean, as we've 
talked about archives and, and certainly Jennifer's work with the uh, Radio Preservation Task Force at the Library of Congress, you know, finding these archives is and finding enough to really put something together can be a real challenge. And I'm curious, Vince, I mean, it sounds like some of this tape uh, existed because uh, it was, it was bicycled. It was traded as part of uh, these educational broadcast networks. Do you have another sense of why there is a relatively large uh, corpus of tape there? I mean, the incredible thing is that so much of it is missing. I mean, we, we, we learn, every day about another show or another routine thing that was on there. I mean, there was a, apparently a huge amount of radio drama on there and we have not found any of the radio drama. So that oh. either, you know, walked, <laughs> walked off with the producers or got, you know, when they sold the station that got transferred. I mean, we haven't really been able to figure this out, but I mean, the, the incredible thing is how much of it is, is missing. I, and so there was so much more out there at some point, I mean, whether that was just broadcast live and never, never put to tape, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's incredible how much of it there is. It, it was just kind of uh, a little bit moldering away in, in these rooms. So, I mean, it was, it was, there really is this like pressing need to transfer this magnetic tape because it's, it's coming apart. And, you know, there's the, all, all these environmental issues are impacting it um, and just making it decay rapidly. So, you know, it, it was, uh, there is just this huge amount of material and it is so different. There's a lot of music, a lot of music entertainment. There's a lot of uh, news stuff. There's a lot of speeches and it just, it, it, it's all this different stuff. And, and I, as I said, I mean, the incredible thing is what's missing. There's so much more out there somewhere. You mentioned music and, and there, there's a pretty famous musician in those archives that maybe you could share with us, Vince. <laughs> oh, well, the- that was actually so. We I remember back when I first came into the project, just as a you know processing intern, uh, that we had like a few sort of crown jewels that we were looking out for. We were looking out for these speeches by Martin Luther King. We were looking out for uh, you know. We eventually realized that we had some of these raw recordings of just the crowds at the March on Washington. But one of the big things that we were looking out for was uh, Bob Dylan's first radio performance was on WRVR. Hmm. Unfortunately, we never actually found our tape of it. Um, I was able to find, you know, someone somewhere had made a bootleg CD of all of Dylan's early radio performances. And thankfully, someone out there has a a really nice, clean recording of, of Dylan's first radio performance and it was on WRVR it was in it was in July of 1961 just in in Riverside in sorry in WRVR's first year uh they had a a hootenanny and it was kind of celebrating that nascent uh Greenwich Village folk scene and they had a a whole wide range of I mean we, we think of I don't know you, you you watch a movie like Inside Lewin Davis or something like that and we have sort of a narrow view of what folk music sounded like but it's it's this whole broad spectrum of stuff. You know, it's blues, it's traditional American music. It's all over the place. It's not just sort of that, uh, the brooding folk music of Bob Dylan. Uh, but, but, you know, we had Pete Seeger and we had Bob Dylan. And so I mean, obviously that, that recording of Bob Dylan's first performance is just, it's incredible. Hmm. He's still lying about where he's from at that point. I, I think that he, I think he made up about 10 different places he was from back in the day. And he was still saying he was from New Mexico or something like that back then. And, and I'm fascinated and, and pleased to know that, I mean, I, in this particular case, someone was running tape at home, but that the tape was running so much at Riverside Church. Because yeah. as we've talked about before and talking about archives, tape in the 1960s was expensive and, and it was very, very common for it to be reused over and over and over again uh, and to be used more not for archival purposes so much as for functional purposes as a backup in order to distribute, you know, um, or, or just as, as for, for later review by a program director or management. Um, so, I mean, do you have a sense, Vince, that, that maybe folks, the management at the station, uh, at the church, knew that there was some that, that that there was something that needed preserving i mean it's you know that someone these days we sort of take it for granted you know because it, recording is so cheap and ubiquitous uh yeah. and it was much just simply not so in the 1960s what do you think is behind uh the, the comparatively great documentation if we don't have even if you don't have it all right now yeah 
I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I think it, it must have been a mix because we have so many items that we find and they're, they're mislabeled or something, or they have a label of something that we really want. And then it's, uh, it's just a recording of some meeting that happened in the 80s. You know, someone recorded over some really incredible material that we had from the old radio days, and it's been replaced since then, unfortunately. Um, but all, there's also a, a bunch that was saved. And my, my hunch is that that was either, you know, that, that producer or that host or that, um, that reporter sort of wanted to keep their own material safe. And so did that. I, I do think that there was, there was quite a, I mean, it's obviously quite a bit of tape. It's, you know, it's 3,500 tapes. It's a huge, huge, huge collection. So they must've had some kind of <laughs> deal or standing order with 3M or something to just get this <laughs> stuff shipped in and on pallets or something like that, because it, just what we have left is still is in, in, in huge amount. So, What's the bulk of that material with, you know, if you have 3000 tapes, um, what type of programming would you say forms the majority of that? Or is there a majority? I I don't know if there's a majority. I I think that they tried it at at a certain point. They were trying to keep the, um, keep the program to about 30% or so religious programming. So that probably makes up the, the, the plurality, but not the majority of the material would be the, there's Sunday services of worship. There's recordings of sermons. As I mentioned, um, the founding minister, Harry Emerson Fosdick, had been uh, a radio preacher. So a, a good deal of his material is, is is on record there. Even if it was a recording from, you know, the 40s or something, we still have it. Um, it, oh. it somehow, made it, somehow made its way to quarter-inch tape. Yeah, you know, um, I meant to sort of ask about that. You know, you said he was a radio preacher. Where were... Where were his broadcasts being heard? He he was he was New York City based. He he had been uh, the, the 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 senior minister at, at a at a church in in New Jersey, and so he broadcast out, out of New York City. Um, and starting as early as I think nineteen twenty four, uh, so fa- fairly early for radio and and religious radio, I guess. Uh, and so he'd been broadcasting from nineteen twenty four. Um, and do you know what stations he was broadcasting on? I I do. Uh, he well, it, initially he was it was kind of a it, it was it was one of NBC's stations. It was a WEAF. Hmm. Um, he initially been pronounced by initially been sorry, approached by WJJZ, which was at the time a competitor of WEAF. Um, but there was this whole kerfuffle about it, and they would have had to sort of. Uh, send his broadcasts through the telephone lines right. to go to the broadcasting tower. But the people who owned the AT&T wouldn't lease their telephone lines to WJZ because they were owned by a competitor. Um, but pretty soon thereafter, by the by, the, by 1926, uh, both WJZ and WEAF had been bought out and became NBC and turned into NBC blue and NBC red. Hmm. Um, so he would have at that point, I think been broadcasting over, over both of those stations uh, on Sunday afternoons. And those were yeah. big, big stations at the time, right? And yeah. I mean, these, these networks were humongous. They were, I mean, these networks broadcast all across the country. So he started out, I think, you know, more local, but I think by the time it's, it's the late 1920s up through, the thirties and forties he's, he's broadcasting nationally. It's, it's, he's a major radio voice and, and probably one of the, you know, as far as I know, one of the few sort of from this mainline Protestant and, and sort of modernist or more progressive religious perspective. I feel like these collections of radio preachers are, are so elusive and, and, and ran, do you run across any of this in your work at AAPB? I feel like this is an area of, of preservation that, well, it's, it's interesting to me personally, but I feel like it's an area that perhaps deserves more attention. Preserving of preachers and lectures, particularly? Yeah, yeah actually, uh, I'm looking through the list of WRVR content, and I think what surprises me most about the lectures by reverends and fathers is that they are so diverse, and they are so transparent. Some of the questions they ask their community is like, what should the church be doing? 
um, and that's a sermon by McCracken. And they have a series about studies in psychology of religion, the unconsciousness. But then again, they have programs on modern dance, on what and where it is in the city. Um, but they also have programs on what aging means. So it seems like such a personal collection uh, when you were talking about why it was so, what, why people went through the lengths they went through to preserve it. And looking at these titles, you almost feel that it is a community talking back to one another on questions of what does it mean to be in a society? Because as it is, I know this is during the 1960s with uh, civil rights going on in Birmingham and then also the Vietnam War. So a lot of the collection has commentary on that also. So I, I like that the priests or religious figure, figures are being transparent. Mm -hmm. And that must have been a draw for a lot of people in the community. I know it would be a draw for me. I like the way you put that, that it that it seems like a personal collection and like a community talking with itself. And and I wonder within the archives, is there evidence of anything uh, like a call in or um, programming that included, you know, voices from the community? So folks who were maybe not leaders, but just everyday kind of people. Yeah, well, there, there are actually a, a few of these uh, different dial in programs. There was a dial in program regularly where they had uh, taxi drivers call in and I think hmm. just sort of talk about what, what they were, what, what was going through their heads. Uh, there was also, uh, I mean, there was a, a tremendous amount of material in the collection about, about Vietnam. Um, and so they had a routine draft dial-ins. They had sort of an expert in the draft uh, there. Um, and, and you could call in and sort of ask questions about the draft. Uh, it's called, called the draft. So, so I mean, um, so if I were say like a 17 year old boy turning into an 18 year old man concerned about whether or not my number might come up, that was the uh, show for me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this, and this, it was interesting too, to me is that this nature of the station as a, as Ren said, as a, as a community talking back to itself, uh, sort of extends even beyond when it leaves Riverside church. There's this whole sort of interesting afterlife of the station too. It, it, it sold away to Sonderling, but there's kind of this uh, understanding that it's going to maintain its format and continue to be sort of jazz focused and continue to offer programming that represents the, the, the black community in New York city. And so when later on Sonderling sells the station to Viacom, uh, there's, this huge, huge outcry and, and, and several legal cases brought by community groups against, uh, against Viacom and against the FCC sort of demanding, you know, this is this community station. It is one of the few stations that's sort of playing, uh, representing jazz music and representing jazz music's uh, sort of expression of the black experience in America and in New York city. Um, and, and it's gonna, it, it was literally overnight turned into a, uh, turned into a country station out, out in Queens. It, it just on one minute they played goodbye pork pie hat. And the next minute they played, uh, are you ready for some country by Waylon Jennings? And there was no real announcement and it just, it just happened. And so there was this humongous outcry about this. And, and you, you could really tell reading about this stuff that the, the community really, it was really a, a beloved station and people really felt that it represented them and represented their interests. And so the station was first sold by the church in 1976. Why was it sold? It's a difficult question. I don't know the exact sort of financial details about it. I do know that uh, from 1961 to 1971, it was this public station, and it was uh, supported by donations. I think largely those donations were from the Rockefeller family. The Rockefeller family had been sort of the financial backing for the church going back to its very beginning in 1927. Uh, and while John D. Rockefeller Jr. had been sort of part of the the impetus to create WRVR, he died very soon after it started. Uh, and so I believe it was his, uh, his family was sort of a little bit hesitant about continuing that financial burden. Uh, and but the, you know they they did continue I, I, you know to support it for several years, but eventually that donor 
money just kind of dried up. And so that was the impetus to go commercial. And then I think after a while, it, it, it just never really got uh, to be financially viable for the church to continue it. That's uh, kind so of that fast- was kind of the impetus. That's kind of fascinating to me. I haven't heard that many stories about a station converting from non-commercial to commercial. Do you know more about that? Was that difficult? <laughs> was it difficult I, for I, them to do that? <laughs> I, I really don't know. I mean, I think that there was some consternation amongst people about the loss of the more educational programming. It, it really did become more predominantly a music format. I mean, it was it was this much more... It was a jazz format, and it was a very sort of uh, studious and erudite version of the jazz format. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there was some consternation about the loss of that educational programming. Um, but I think at the same time, there was a, clearly a, a lot of desire and demand for them to continue and expand that jazz programming. Um, and And their sort of keystone show, as I mentioned before, was just jazz with Ed Beach. And uh, he was really considered like the, the Don of this more academic and erudite version of, of jazz programming, not treating it just like pop music, but kind of discussing in depth, you know, who was playing, uh, you know, when these sessions were, who was producing these sessions. It was a very like uh, conscious and studious version of, of the jazz format. Uh, and and he he remained from 1961 to 1976. He stayed all mm. through the entire run while it was at Riverside Church. And that voice you just heard is Vince Kelly, archivist with uh, the Riverside Church in New York City, which was once home for radio station WRVR. We're talking about the archives from that station storied run, and you were just hearing a little bit about sort of the end of the station in that period in 1976. You know, we're also talking t- with uh, Rin Marchesi, from the American Archives of Public Broadcasting. And, and Rin, I just, as, as we kind of wrap up here, you know, we talk about there's like 4,000 hours of, of programming that, that you're in, in, engaged in both archiving and, of course, transcribing uh, with computer transcriptions corrected by, uh, by uh, volunteers from the public. And I'm wondering, is, was there any special challenges or... Um, and that that stood out to you or any anything uh that marks this collection differently compared to what you you typically encounter there in in the public broadcasting archives it's a good question um i am fascinated by the diversity of content that the station covered and that some of the tiles uh, the tiles on the home page for these transcripts can be right next to each other such as uh, there's a program, the WRVR series that they produced called The Homosexual, A New Minority, where they had different conversations about homosexuals, uh, which is an antiquated term. And I know that I'm just repeating what's in the title, but they actually explore that, which is nice to, to see. It's a civilized conversation about, you know, what does it mean to be homosexual in society? And that's paired right next to a program that's a rabbinical reading uh, or Hebrew Hebrew reading uh, with rabbinical commentary. So I think everybody has a complicated background with religion, or if they do, coming to this collection can be an interesting experience. And speaking from my experience where I do have a complicated background with religion, it was fascinating to see that there was a church that covered so many topics, even in Spanish, they had Spanish programming and also talking about topics that we're still talking about in terms of aging or what is democracy, what is patriotism, how to raise a baby. What does it mean to be a different religion? What is their belief? How can we work together these are all important conversations, and I think that that separates WRVRs because it's having religion is such a cornerstone in how people live their everyday lives for a lot of people. And this kind of just turns that idea of what it means to be religious on its head. And I enjoy that. And this, it's refreshing. 
I'd have to say. This collection's refreshing. And Rin, can you remind our listeners where they can check out uh, some of these archives and sort of dive in for themselves to hear it firsthand? Absolutely. Anyone in the U.S. due to copyright um, can only view it in, in the U.S. at AmericanArchive.org. And to correct transcripts, they can go to Fixit Plus, spelled out, .americanarchive.org. And as I mentioned, for WRVR, they have a separate uh, transcript page, which is wrvrtranscripts.americanarchive.org. And you're having your transcript edit-a-thon on uh, June 17th. And, and so by I guess folks can help at any time, but this is a period in which you kind of want to whip people up and get them, get them really engaged on this day at, at 1 p.m. Eastern mm-hmm. time, correct? Correct. We're going to send out uh, the link pretty soon. Uh, anyone can join via the Zoom link. They can register and that will give you the uh, meeting ID. So anyone can come to that event. Wonderful. And we will definitely put links to all of this as well as some of these uh, selected excerpts in our show notes at com slash podcast. Uh, this is episode number 301. So Rin Marchese from the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and Vince Kelly from Riverside Church, former home of WRVR. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, there we are. You know, it's interesting, your, your comments, Rand. My, my wife grew up in the UCC, the United Church of Christ, which I believe is, is that the former affiliation, formal affiliation of Riverside? Is that correct? I believe it's one of them. We're, we're technically non-denominational, right. so we have like a few, a few different uh, official associations. But yeah, yeah, I think that's one of them. So yeah, I myself grew up uh, non-religious, uh, and so... Uh, getting to know the congregation that my wife grew up in uh, gave me a similar experience to what you have because it tends to be very progressive. Um, you know, I see the impact it's had on on her family and their values, and and so also the interactions you know with other um, you know political as well as social justice movements in, uh, in the Denver, Colorado area. Um, so, you know, it was, it, it, it stood apart from what my, uh, upbringing had been, you know, in, in, in contact with religion, you know, with peers and friends and such, uh, you know, uh, which, which seemed often, uh, much more conservative (laughs) in in a lot of ways. Yeah. I grew up, uh, um, Catholic, but I'm queer. So I grew up in a very conservative Midwestern town. So approaching a collection like this was actually way more interesting for my psyche just because it was so much more liberal and progressive and political and talked about the things that we didn't talk about at home. And that is what makes Riverside's collection stand out to me because it's inviting for anybody, even the Jewish programming, which I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I will sit and listen to that 15-minute program because it's engaging for any audience. And it's meant to be that way. And I think that's why it was preserved, because it is such a personal collection to the community. But Vince would know more about that. Well, it, it also seems quite different from when I think about religious radio stations that I'm aware of that have a more conservative bent, you know, it, the collection is so different. Um, uh, that's what makes it really fascinating to me. Um, you know, there are places like family radio that had, well, still continue to have a massive network of radio and TV stations, uh, but their programming was quite conservative. So you would have these, these programs that were a sort of one mindset, you know, it wasn't the diversity of ideas that you have here. Um, and that kind of brings me to a question for you, Vince, about, about churches and archives. Is that unusual for churches to have this incredible, um, have, have, is it unusual for churches to have an archive with a number of staff members the way you do at Riverside? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I'm really, I'm really new to the world of religious archives myself and I, I'm still learning. So I, you know, I, I, I'm just speaking anecdotally, but the people that we've come across in, 
in, in the New York City area who are also part of religious archives, um, a lot of them either serve sort of the whole diocese, uh, not just one single church. They, they serve a whole diocese of, of dozens of churches. Um, and their collections are, while there's, you know, some interesting art or some interesting three-dimensional, uh, you know, just three-dimensional objects that they have, uh, it, it's mostly institutional records. It's mostly, you know, baptism, marriage, funeral, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and the actual, you know, sort of minutes of meetings of, of the people operating the, the diocese and that, that sort of thing. Um, or on the other hand, there's uh, collections which are, you know, a- academic in nature or, and, and just sort of, you know, the, there's the Burke Library at Union Theological Seminary. And, and, and so they have a much more uh, academic bent and uh, they have the papers of, of various professors who've taught there and um, but it's, it's not itself a religious institute or it's you know, not itself a, a church. It's, um, so yeah, that, it's been interesting sort of learning about that. I, I, I have a similar experience to Rin. I, I'm a lapsed Catholic. I, I grew up Catholic, but you know, not anymore. And so it's been really interesting learning everything about having to learn everything about Protestantism in a few years, having, having worked here. Uh, so uh, it, yeah, I mean that, that that's been an interesting process as well. It's it just it, it is such a different community uh, than I'm used to, or, or that I would, uh, it, you know, it, my uh, you know biases would would not have suggested that this is what a church's archives collection looks like. But it's filled with art, filled with sculpture, filled with you know, uh, there was a big arts and crafts community at the church for many years, and there's all these incredible uh, puppets and dolls, and it there's so much art. Um, so many paintings and it, it, it's uh, it, it's just much more complex than uh, just institutional records and, and a few Bibles. You know, it's, it's all kinds of different stuff that this whole community that has been built around Riverside. And I think it's because Riverside is such a, it's interdenominational, it's non-denominational. It's, it, it, it's open to everyone. It, at times it's even been open. You know, it's, it, it's had relationships with, with even, you know, not non-Christian religions. It's, it's not even just exclusively Christian per se. Um, so th- that's been really interesting, an interesting experience. Cool. It is great to work with WRVR because they are preserving their audiovisual collection, which is a choice. It's, 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 as we all, as audiovisual content is deteriorating, it is harder to get on board of digitizing that content before it deteriorates. And, Vince working at an institution where there is also other parts of their collection where there's paper materials and objects to preserve. It's great that they are also preserving their audiovisual history because we at the APB work with stations across the nation where they mainly have a collection of audiovisual material and they are applying for grants to preserve it or don't have the resources on staff to preserve it. So I think in general, archivists preserving audiovisual content from public broadcasting institutions is something that needs to be more known about and, and supported. Yeah. What's the timeline like for some of these materials, Rin? Is it, it's pretty urgent, right? Yeah. So in 2012, the library of Congress came out with a report saying that audiovisual content had about 15 to 20 years before it become it deteriorates to a point where it can't be saved. And so that was 2012. And you're talking about principally tape in this case. Yes. Or, yeah. Um, reels, mm-hmm. um, decks of tape. Yep. And- so if it, and a lot of stations don't have staff to maintain it, such as, making sure it's organized so that if they do want to digitize it, there's titles, there's descriptions, or there's knowledge of what's on the tapes. That's why transcriptathons are so helpful because having computer generated transcripts helps us know what a program is. If it's a conversation, if it's a news program or who's talking most of the time, because there's so much content to go through, it's important to have these resources such as transcriptathon platforms. 
So information, again, about the transcriptathon, which is being put on by the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and the Riverside Church Archives, which are making these newly digitized, this collection of newly digitized materials from the former public radio station WRVR there in New York City, uh, more accessible to researchers and the hard of hearing. Uh, a little bit extra information about the Riverside Church that we received in our email uh, that we first received from Vincent Kelly to tell us about the event. It was owned and operated by the Riverside Church. Oh, the radio station was owned and operated by the Riverside Church from 1961 to 1976. WRVR was the first radio station to win a Peabody Award for its entire programming, in part for its coverage of the 1963 Birmingham Civil Rights Movement. In 2018, the Council on Library and Information Resources awarded a grant to digitize, preserve, and make publicly accessible the WRVR collection in a joint project between Riverside Church and the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. As you've heard on today's show, but in case you missed it, the WRVR collection features progressive religious and philosophical discussions with Riverside clergy, theologians, scholars, including Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., as well as culturally significant programming, including speeches and performances by Langston Hughes, Robert Frost, John Ashbery, Allen Ginsberg, and of course, Bob Dylan's very first appearance on the radio in his career. You've been listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. Our show can be heard each week. We cover the world of the history, the history of radio in this country as well as the world. We talk about community radio, public radio, college radio, non-commercial radio, as well as podcasting that serves communities. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits, thank you so much for listening. This is a podcast that you can hear online as well as on the radio each week. The podcast version of today's episode is slightly longer if you want to check it out. It's online at radiosurvivor.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. The project that you that we are engaged in is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more about how you can support what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>